This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Tom Switzer. Thanks for joining me for Between the Lines, the summer series, where we revisit some of the highlights and favourite interviews from the year that was. Later in this episode, Republican rising star and governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, and the story of his anti-woke crusade, his battle with the Disney Corporation, and his threat to revoke the theme park's special zoning status. Also, author and columnist Lionel Shriver, she critiques contemporary culture and progressive politics. But first, how demographic trends shape the present and influence international relations. Well, Nicholas Eberstadt is one of the world's leading demographers and North Korea watchers. He holds a chair at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, and his latest book is called Men Without Work, Post-Pandemic Edition. Nick, welcome to the program. Um, thank you so much. Now, Demography, as you've written, does not dictate any nation's destiny, but for students of geopolitics, it certainly shapes every nation's trajectory. How do demographics offer a clue to the geopolitical world of the future? Well, it isn't destiny, Tom, but it slowly and quite unforgivingly alters the realm of the possible, not from one month to the next, but from one generation to the next. Uh, already today, we have a very good idea of how many workers will be in the workforce uh, 10, 15, 20 years from now. We've got a good idea about how many retirees there will be. We can tell what sorts of trends are underway that may be supporting or conversely putting headwinds against a national economy, and we can tell something about the human capital formation, not just the head counts, but also the health and education trends. Well, let's put this in some broader context. I mean, the demographics certainly, as you've written, help explain America's extraordinary rise from the mid-19th century onwards. But, you know, past performance is no guarantee of future results especially when we talk about China's spectacular rise in recent decades. Tell us about the negative trends now eating away at the foundations of US power. Uh, we have a number of phenomena in the United States that I refer to collectively as a sort of a new misery. That's a cloud that sort of descended on us. We've got big health problems even before the COVID calamity, slowing life expectancy improvement and even some retrogressions. We've had a slowdown in improvements in educational attainment and sheer years of schooling in the United States. And we've had a flight from work especially for men of prime working ages, the 25 to 54 group. You can't count on utilizing human capital advantages if those advantages aren't becoming manifest. Okay, I'm going to address them very soon. But at the same time, China's economy faces heavy headwinds. Uh, tell us about the, the demographic trends going against China. For 40 years, 
China had the most spectacular economic run, I think, in recorded economic history. Fastest long-term growth rates of the biggest population in the world. And a lot of that was supported by tailwinds, by demographic tailwinds in China. Uh, but we're past that. We're on the other side now, and China's demographic headwinds are growing. What are they? Decline of the headcount for the labor force very, very rapid population aging, graying on a relatively low income level, uh, a very strange imbalance between marriageable men and marriageable women in total numbers, uh, which is causing a sort of a bare branches phenomenon, and also uh, an atrophy of the Chinese family, which has always been the basic building block of their society and their economy. What about Russia? Russia's demographic story is good news, bad news story, except that there's no good news. <laughs> I mean, if, you take, if you take a look at the human capital side, it's really disastrous. It's not just the headcount decline. It's not just the population decline. Places like Japan and Germany can prosper with smaller, grayer populations. What we see in Russia is a health crisis and the strange situation where where Russia seems to have very high levels of education in terms of diplomas, but not a lot of human capital in terms of inventions, uh, patents, development of innovations for the economy as a whole. So these are disturbing trends for the two counter great powers to the United States, China and Russia. They're disturbing demographic trends here. Where does India fit in here? Because unlike China with its aging society and everything you've just said about Russia, I mean, India has a very young population, right, Nick? Absolutely. India's population is very young and is growing, although it might be surprising to know that in the last few years, India's birth levels have fallen below replacement. India is now a sub-replacement uh, country. It's going to continue to grow substantially for a generation or more, but it's going to become a gray society as well. If health is the Achilles heel, the demographic Achilles heel for Russia, education may be for India. There are hundreds of millions of persons of working age in India who have never been to school. And India is probably about half a century behind China in the race to eliminate illiteracy. Yeah, that is very interesting. So all things considered, given everything you've said, in your judgment, Nick, you say that US is an enviable position, which is quite striking given that you've just said to me that life expectancy has dropped for much of the past decade. You've got the poor progress in US public health indicators. That's been painfully slow. And then the improvements in educational attainment, they have they've basically stalled in the US in recent decades. Fertility rates have been falling. And yet you're upbeat about America. It's a compared to what question, yeah, Tom. Yeah. Compared to what? Even after these pretty unpleasant trends that I'm describing to you in the United States, and as an American citizen, I take no pleasure in describing those to you, you have to say that on balance, there really isn't a close second to the United States at the moment. China isn't a close second at the moment. The United States has an advantage that China does not have, which is a non-demographic one. This is that it is able to form an alliance system based upon democratic values with other willing 
economies, countries, peoples around the world. And when you put that alliance system together and you take a look at what that portends, it's really hard to come up with a competitor for that. Okay. Uh, We've had guests on this program over the years, Nick. Uh, I think of Kishore Mabulbani from Singapore, mm-hmm. uh, Bob Carr, the former foreign minister and New South Wales Premier, Jeff Raby, sure. our former ambassador to China. They'll say that um, artificial intelligence will help China dramatically. They'll also say that, yes, there's been a collapse in fertility in, the, in, in China, but the end of the one-child policy will help China. How would you respond to them? Something very strange has happened in China with the end of the one-child policy or the suspension of the policy. China's birth totals, if we believe the official numbers, have undergone a swan dive, despite the lifting, temporarily at least, of the uh, the strictures. China's birth totals between 2016 and 2021, as officially reported, have dropped by about 40%. A 40% drop in annual birth totals in a five or six year period is what you would expect to see of a society in wartime or in terrible disruption or in a plague or some other sort of catastrophe. It's not what you usually see in a society that's undergoing orderly progress. My guest is the distinguished American demographer, Nicholas Eberstadt. His latest book is called Men Without Work. This is the post-pandemic edition. Nick, you mentioned the extraordinary flight from work earlier. That's underway in post-COVID America. We have a situation here, and you've written a lot about this in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and elsewhere. We have a situation here where employers uh, are practically begging for workers while vast numbers of grown men and women, they sit on the sidelines of the economy. What accounts for this unprecedented peacetime labour shortage? It is in the wake of a catastrophe with the uh, COVID calamity in the United States, but it's not due to subtraction of humans from this mass death experience. Most of the people who perished from COVID were quite old, older than working ages. And it isn't due to people who are sick with long COVID. Uh, there is some of that accounting for withdrawals from the labor force, but it's not the it's not the big part of the story. Uh, We've had a 4 million person increase in job openings, in unfilled jobs, and about a 4 million person shortfall in pre-COVID manpower trends. An awful lot of that has been due to withdrawals from the labor force, I think as a consequence of unintended consequence of COVID emergency rescue policies, economic and financial. You write in the American context, Nick, quote, Never has work been so readily available in modern America. Never have so many been uninterested in taking that work. Great quote, but to what extent is this a global dilemma? Surely it's not just confined to the United States. Well, of course, you know it. You know it here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Labor shortage here. You've also had this retreat from the workforce by prime age men in Australia, not as extreme as in the United States, but you're familiar with this as well. Um, to some degree, this is worldwide. To some degree, this has to do with uh, consequences of supply chain issues, uh, with the uh, over uh, overshoot of some of the rescue policies by different governments as well. But I think. In the United States, it's probably more acute than in other places at the moment. 
Finally, Nick, let's talk about North Korea. You are one of America's most seasoned observers of the Kim dynasty. What do you make of Pyongyang's, I mean, there are many missile and rocket tests throughout this year. They've been close to something like 30 weapons tests this year mm. alone. These are ones that involve cruise or ballistic missiles. In your assessment, what's Kim Jong-un up to? He's trying to test weaponry to make sure that it works because he wants to have a nuclear arsenal and a uh, and a set of uh, shorter and long-range missile platforms to deliver these weapons on so as to threaten the United States to break the U.S.-South Korean military alliance, to push the U.S. out of the Korean peninsula, and if it comes to that, to win against the South in an unconditional war of unification. Yeah, the conventional wisdom says that these tests show that Kim and his regime, they're just trying to get our attention or that it's just shoring up uh, the regime's domestic legitimacy. How would you respond to them? It's an awfully expensive way to uh, get our attention. We, you know, we still do have the internet and, you know, telephones. And as for shoring up uh, legitimacy, Maybe it's maybe it's possible that this uh, that this helps the pride of the regime, the propaganda of the regime. But I think that it might help them a little bit more if they could have economic results for their population. Your, so your critics, um, and I just mentioned John Mearsheimer earlier, prominent realist from the University of Chicago. If he were here now, Nick, he'd say, well, surely Kim's primary goal is just survival. And uh, he calculates, Kim calculates this is the Mearsheimer argument, that the end of his mm -hmm. regime means the end of Kim. So from his perspective, Kim's perspective, it makes plenty of sense to develop nuclear weapons because nukes are the ultimate deterrent. Again, how would you respond to that realist criticism? Every regime tries to ensure its own survival. So that's clear all around the world. What's strange about North Korea is what it seems to uh, need to make Kim Jong-un feel safe. The regime is threatened by the market economy internationally. That's why they talk about the market economy being ideological and cultural infiltration and poison. They feel threatened by the existence of a successful uh, alternative Korean state on their peninsula. Uh, and certainly they're threatened by the U.S. protection of this successful alternative state. To make Kim Jong-un feel safe, he needs a world in which there is no United States presence in Asia and in which there is no alternative state on the peninsula. But North Korea... Let's be frank, it's a minor power surrounded by three major powers. You've got China, Japan, Russia, and you mentioned the United States. They're an outside power, and sometimes Washington threatens North Korea with regime change. So from Kim's perspective, when Washington helps topple Saddam's Iraq or Colonel Gaddafi's Libya, doesn't that just give Pyongyang a very powerful incentive to keep its nuclear weapons? Tom, I think it's overdetermined. Uh, North Korea's regime, North Korea's leadership can always find a good reason to continue with its nuclear program. Because if one reads the North Korean documents, if one reads the North Korean press, the statements of three generations of Kims, they talk about 
being the leaders of a movement for the national destiny of the Korean race, to unify the Korean race against the outside hostile forces. At this point, given the poor performance of the North Korean regime in economics and in international culture, there's no cake pop there, in everything else, nuclear weapons are about their last card for trying to play this. You see, Donald Trump would disagree. Now, he believed that if there is any hope of discouraging Pyongyang from using nuclear weapons, then the Americans would need to stop threatening regime change and try to reach an accommodation with the hermit kingdom. Now, of course, Trump is a minority voice uh, on these issues in the in the policy debates, but he was president and he did try to reach an accommodation with the Kim regime. So how would you respond to that argument by the likes of Donald Trump? Donald Trump tried something that no American president had tried before. He's a most unconventional president, and he had a very unconventional policy. And he got Kim Jong-un to the table to discuss the possibility of North Korean denuclearization. Uh, When the Kim regime found out that Trump and company were serious about actually getting a a statement from them on where their nuclear facilities were located, it was a deal breaker. Nick, great to chat with you on the program. Great fun for me, Tom. Thank you for inviting me. That was Nicholas Eberstadt from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. He's the author of Men Without Work, Post-Pandemic Edition. Up next, we go back to June of this year and an interview my colleague Kylie Morris did with Zach Wiesmuller, an American video journalist who's been following the stoush between Ron DeSantis and the Disney Corporation. Part of everything we'll be doing in Disney World will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. The need is not just for curing the old ills of old cities. We think the need is for starting from scratch on virgin land and building a special kind of new community. Now, if you thought Disney World Orlando was a magic kingdom, well, you would be partly right. For the last 50 years, it's also operated as an experiment in municipal governance. It's a place run and governed by private enterprise. It's autonomous, self-regulating. And for a big corporation like Disney, there's a certain attraction to being free of local planning and zoning laws, being able to collect and pay yourself taxes as well as providing and controlling local services. But this experiment in private enterprise government could all come crashing down uh, to explain what's happening and to take us through the machinations and the ramifications. I'm joined by Zach Weissmuller, who's a senior producer at Reason, a leading US libertarian magazine and video website. Zach, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Zach, the latest chapter in this story began a few months ago when Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, brings in his parental rights in education bill. Now, opponents labelled that the don't say gay law. Can you explain that to us? Tell us how Florida's most powerful company and the state's popular governor came to blows. Sure. So this law is one of a slew of laws that has been passing in mostly 
Republican, you know, GOP dominated states in the U.S. uh, to fight what they see as the incursion of gender ideology into the schools. So teaching kids about uh, sexuality or uh, transgender issues at ages that some people think it's too young to be introducing. And so this is one of the big cultural battlegrounds in the U.S. right now. Um, and uh, Ron DeSantis is, you know, if Trump doesn't run, he is the likely Republican front runner. So he's really planting his flag and, you know, taking a stand on the, these hot culture war issues. And so he and the Republican dominated legislature here in Florida uh, passed that law, the Parental Rights and Education Act, and it quickly became not just a Florida issue, but a national issue, as you mentioned, labeled the don't say gay law by its opponents. And what it does is says that in grades K through three, uh, kindergarten through third grade, you can't broach these topics. And then in the older grades, it's you can only introduce it in what they say is a developmentally appropriate manner uh, as defined by the kind of state level education agency. And Disney obviously is one of the largest employer, private employers in the state of Florida. And they also have a reputation of being very LGBT friendly. And they had this to some people, kind of conspicuous silence around the issue. They obviously give a lot of political donations to candidates here in Florida. And I think the the, the CEO, Bob Chapek, didn't necessarily want to rock the boat, but then the pressure kind of ratcheted up. And after the law was passed, he released a memo apologizing to his employees for not speaking out and saying they were going to throw money to other states where this kind of legislation was going to pass and also seize all political donations in the state of Florida. And then this set off a reaction from the Republican lawmakers in Florida who decided that the best way to kind of turn the screws on Disney would be to revoke the status of this special district that was created in 1966 called the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which, as you mentioned at the top, gives them uh, surprising levels of autonomy to set up their own their own infrastructure, their own power system and water system. They even technically have the right to establish their own nuclear power plant that they've never exercised it and their own police. Um, And this arrangement has It's an unusual arrangement, but it's worked out fairly well, both for Disney and the state of Florida these past 55 years. um, And it's only now coming to a head. Zach, we'll get into, I guess, what the uh, impacts of that seemingly bureaucratic move by DeSantis might be. But first of all, let's put this in context. I mean, you, you, you gesture toward the scale of this. Uh, it's uh, the world's most visited resort, over 50 million visitors a year, uh, America's largest single employer site with 77,000 workers. Uh, for those of us who haven't been there or taken our kids there, 
Uh, just how big, I mean, does it feel like Disney City? Does it feel like you've left Florida and, uh, and, and crossed a border when you arrive? That's exactly what it feels like. And that's exactly what Walt Disney's vision was for this. You know, he had Disneyland in California. That was the first theme park that they had set up. And what happened there was that in Anaheim, California, they kind of just plopped it right in the middle of the city there. And then all the tacky tourist shops started popping up, the neon jungle, and it really rubbed Walt and uh, his brother Roy the wrong way. And also the people in Anaheim were kind of annoyed by it. And so his idea here was, well, I'm just going to buy up as much land as I can somewhere. He ended up settling on Central Florida for various reasons and kind of bought these small tracts of land, ended up buying over 27,000 acres. So this is roughly the size of Manhattan. Um, it was all done in secret and they kind of patched it together and then decided we are going to use cutting edge at the time urban design to build this core and then have these green belts around it that insulate us from the surrounding the surrounding world really so that we really are creating our own little kingdom. It sounds like they can't insulate themselves though any longer from Ron DeSantis. Tell us I mean, Ron DeSantis is a big deal, obviously, in the US and covered widely. But for Australian listeners, who is Ron DeSantis? I mean, we get a, a sense of him, I guess, as a kind of Trump protege. Yes, he, he is, in a sense, a, a Trump protege. He won his election in Florida barely. It was within a couple thousand votes. Uh, there was a last minute scandal that his opponent underwent that kind of propelled him over the edge there. And then he really rose to prominence during the COVID-19 pandemic, because whereas all the governors were locking down their states and going in one direction, he went the other direction. And he was one of the first governors to say, we're not going to shut down our businesses anymore. Um, we're going to try to learn to adapt to the virus. And that gained him a lot of popularity among some people in the U.S. who agreed with him. Um, he was kind of the boldest person going in that direction, and uh, it attracted a lot of people to Florida, actually. Uh, you know, Florida has seen massive population growth, whereas some of these other states that were more restrictive, New York and California, have seen an exodus. So his national profile uh, raised during all that. And he also is just someone who he's taken the Trumpian strategy of really going into battle with the media. Anyone who criticizes him, he uh, has, you know, passed laws to try to go after the tech companies in Florida for supposedly censoring conservative voices. So he's thrown himself right into the middle of, you know, every culture war that he sees. Now, it's one of his lieutenants, effectively, or another conservative um, politician who moves things on in that Randy Fine, who's the state, one of the state Republican representatives, then gets involved, introduces a bill. What, what does that bill, what's at stake here for Disney? What does it stand to lose 
given Randy Fine's bill? Yeah, Randy Fine's bill revokes, it, it dissolves the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which was really a special taxing district. And it, it started off as a drainage district of all things, because Disney needed to drain all the swamplands to build this entire thing. And then they found a way that they could turn that into an autonomous district with its own facilities and infrastructure and government. It, it has its own elected board, although that board is elected by the 50 or so residents who live on the property who also all happen to be Disney employees. So it really is, you know, Disney's government. All the revenue that goes to them comes from the Disney Corporation. And what that has enabled them to do, the reason they wanted this arrangement was because it allows them to bypass all of the local zoning ordinances, establish their own building code. So when they you know, put up a giant fiberglass castle, they don't have to go to the Orange County Planning Department and, you know, get a bureaucrat to rubber stamp it. They can just do it. And so the Republicans, such as Randy Fine and uh, DeSantis, have kind of characterized this as they're taking away a special tax break for Disney. It's not quite so straightforward that they wanted a tax break this because they still pay taxes on top of what they pay in the district. What this really was for them was the ability to do whatever they want on that land. And that is what is being threatened because if this is dissolved, first of all, it's unclear exactly who will be responsible for the infrastructure since Disney pays for all of it now. Uh, some of the local government officials there are now kind of sweating bullets because they think they're going to have to raise property taxes significantly to, to cover that. Um, and DeSantis has even said, no, that's not going to happen. We're going to absorb Reedy Creek into the state of Florida government. So it's not exactly clear what's going to happen. This doesn't go into effect officially until June 2023. There's a lot of time to negotiate between now and then. And there are probably going to be some concessions on both sides. And if I had to place a bet, I don't think the Reedy Creek District will ultimately be completely dissolved. I think there's going to be some sort of give and take on both sides. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Kylie Morris. My guest is Zach Weissmuller, senior producer at Libertarian Magazine and video website Reason. Now, Zach, these special privileges that you describe go way back to, as you mentioned, Walt Disney. I understand he didn't live to see the project come to fruition, but was very much instrumental in setting it up. So tell us about the Orlando project how it came into existence. What was Walt's vision? What was the dream? So Walt created a little 10-minute presentation called uh, um, the Epcot Project. Uh, so a lot of your listeners might know Epcot. It's one of the five theme parks that are on the property. At the time, uh, was a very future had a very futuristic vision now when you go there it's kind of strange it's almost this like weird retro futurism um you know walt was a big he was friends with robert moses the uh famous new york developer and uh the person who ran the world's fair in new york and disney had uh, established attractions at the world's fair and so this was a very 
heady time for urban development where people were rethinking, you know, what can cities be? How can we harness this, uh, all this great new technology that's emerging in the post-war period to revive our cities that are experiencing a lot of unrest and riots? And Walt Disney in this presentation said he was actually going to turn Epcot into a city. Epcot stands for the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. And he is promising in this presentation that it's going to have 20,000 residents. There's going to be an urban center and the monorails are going to bring people in from the less the lower density fringes. And it's going to be a demonstration of what a city could be. And so he was kind of selling the local officials at the time on that idea that we need all this autonomy enabled in order to do this. And you have to think about Central Florida at that time. It was, you know, agriculture, oranges and, um, you know, some military technology being built there. But it was not a, a huge population center. So this is a huge idea from this very reputable company, uh, this beloved company, that they we're going to build all this in Florida. Uh, a lot of this is, is based on a, a book called Married to the Mouse, whose author I interviewed, and they were enchanted by this idea, and that helped to get it all done. But of course, Epcot never was turned into a living residential city. Uh, and so that is why some of the politicians now are saying, well, this was done on a little bit of false pretenses to begin with. So we're justified in taking it away now. It's in that book, Married to the Mouse, isn't it? Where um, where the Disney project is described as the Vatican with mouse ears, which I think is a really <laughs> yes. helpful, helpful way to understand it. So Zach, where do you see this dispute between DeSantis and Disney heading? If you know, in a year's time, Ron DeSantis decides to push through with ending these special arrangements, what happens then? Does Disney just hand over the oversight and, and go back to being regulated? There are a lot of complications. There are a lot of legal complications that would pop up as that process unfolds. One is that the Reedy Creek Improvement District, in order to fund the improvements on this giant tract of land, issues bonds. And they have over a billion dollars in bondholder debt. And if it is dissolved, it's unclear where, like who makes the bondholders whole. Again, does that now fall on the local counties, Orange and Osceola County? If so, they're probably going to file some sort of lawsuit against the state of Florida. This was all kind of baked into this deal. And it's one of those things that's just been around so long. And the arrangement is so entrenched that to just tear it apart like this, it, it takes a lot of untangling. And so I don't know that, that that's why I think that ultimately some sort of compromise is, is going to have to be met. You know, may, maybe Disney, you, you know, that they're allowed to, one perk they get here is that they can develop on their land without paying improvement fees to the local government. And maybe that's something that gets taken away, that now they have to pay the same fees that Universal or SeaWorld would. And that's, you know, that that evens the playing field or something like that. But they still get to maintain some autonomy. So I really don't see it 
maybe I'm wrong, but it's hard for me to see it uh, getting absorbed into the state of Florida. And I don't know that Ron DeSantis really cares that much about doing that. Um, this is really just, you know, a political win for him because he's, you know, the Republicans here are portraying Disney as they're on the side of these woke leftist culture warriors, and we are fighting back. And this is how you fight back. And that's really what he wants to show that he is this guy who, like Trump, is going to use his power to fight back against this culture. So he's a kind of a ringmaster in the culture wars, which is yes. where, he, where he wants to be. Presumably, though, Floridian, Floridian voters, if it starts to cost them lots of money to make up for the money that isn't being paid by Disney or the the um, responsibilities that the state takes on, surely um, that will mean that the popularity of DeSantis's move might be damaged. I think that's right. I think that that's a that's certainly a, a cost that will a political cost that will have to be paid if if they actually go through and shift you know, the the funding of Disney's infrastructure onto local taxpayers. I've got to imagine a lot of those taxpayers are not going to be happy in an inflationary time to suddenly be seeing their property taxes raised because of Randy Fine and Ron DeSantis. So for the libertarians, what does the Disney experiment represent, the Disney dream? If it does end in a year's time, what will its legacy be? I think for libertarians, there's a lot of promise in this idea of semi-privatized autonomous zones. I, I went down to Honduras uh, several years ago, which tried to push this initiative to allow companies to create little zones with their own set of rules and governance that would the idea was that it would attract investment because they would be protected from the kind of corrupt national government there. There's a whole movement called the Charter City Movement that, that is trying to do that in places in Central America and Africa. And what Disney did was kind of the template. It kind of sparks the imagination. They didn't succeed in, or it's not even clear that they wanted to build a city of 20,000 residents, but it kind of put the idea out there and showed that a private company could at least maintain its own infrastructure and utilities and so forth. And so maybe this is something that could be done at scale in a developing country and, and help turn it around. So that is kind of the, the Disney dream that I think gets libertarians excited is the idea could privatizing some services that we typically think of being provided by the public sector, could that actually work? And, and could it actually help people live in a healthier you know, urban environment? Zach, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. That was Zach Wiesmuller, a senior video journalist with Reason, a libertarian magazine and website. He spoke with my colleague, Collie Morris on Between the Lines in June of this year. And as a postscript to that story, Zach tells us that the decision regarding Disney's special status is pending and an outcome is still expected by June of 2023. 
Well, her journalism is very bracing, says The Guardian. The Australian Financial Review calls her relentlessly contrarian. Oddly unpredictable is how the Washington Post calls her writing, and that's what keeps her interesting. According to the Sunday Times, she's the scourge of a virtue-signalling, no-platforming literary world. And, and this is my favourite, this is the Wall Street Journal, a rare voice, someone who challenges orthodoxies in the way that many journalists and public intellectuals claim to do, but don't. Well, as these observations make clear, Lionel Shriver is a provocative and very popular writer, and she's difficult to pigeonhole ideologically. A lifelong US Democrat, she cried on the night of Donald Trump's victory in 2016. She's also a pro-Brexit, anti-lockdown, anti-woke warrior. Lionel Shriver is an award-winning novelist and author, most recently, of Abominations, her first non-fiction book, and this is the subheading, Selected Essays from a Career of Courting Self-Destruction. <laughs> it's just out, published by Harper. Lionel, lovely to be with you again. Oh, it's nice to talk to you again, too. Now, you're an international bestseller of novels, yet the organisers of writers' festivals, they don't really like you anymore. Why? I'm non-compliant. <laughs> um, <laughs> these people aren't very brave. And the truth is uh, they're doing themselves a disservice because there's a huge audience for the anti-woke position. It's actually most people. And uh, the mistake I think uh, the uh, literati make in putting these events together is imagining that first off everyone has the same you know hard left opinions and also that what people want is a an ideologically monochrome event whereas actually most people like conflict and action and change and variety and contrast it's boring to have all your writers think and say the same things. And by the way, it's also boring for them to write the same things. So these festival groups, and there are a lot of them in Australia, they're big on gender diversity, for instance, but not ideological diversity. That's your point. Yeah, and it's it's not really giving the audience what they want. Well, many of our listeners won't forget the controversy in 2016. This was the Brisbane Writers Festival. You gave the keynote address and you criticize, and you talk about this in your book, you criticize the notion of cultural appropriation. Now, for those tuning in who aren't aware of this term, uh, it's the apparent inappropriate adoption of an element of one culture or identity by members of another culture or identity. Now, that speech, Lionel, as you well know, it provoked a walkout from one aggrieved left-wing writer. It provoked a Twitter storm and then worldwide media coverage. Now, that was in 2016. Why have the restrictions of cultural expression worsened since then? Well, I feel a little guilty because um, insofar as I had any influence on the popularity <laughs> of this, to me, fake taboo, I probably spread it further. Um, and that was not my intention. I was hoping to nip. Yeah, you made a bad situation that. worse. It's. I think it's a goofball notion. The truth is that cultures. You can't put a fence around cultures. They overlap like crazy. They are constantly 
borrowing from each other. And that's a, a highly productive uh, enterprise. It's one of the things that makes cities so interesting to live in. Uh, and when it comes to fiction, the last thing we need to encourage fiction writers to do is to not extend themselves to others and people who are not like them and just write about themselves. That's what they want to do naturally anyway. And so this artificial prohibition against writing about people who are different uh, means that you're making the the fictional world fundamentally reduced to, to memoir. My concern is is as much for the audience as as it is for the the writer. The audience does not want to only read memoir, and there are there are a lot of um, you know great works of art uh, that would not exist if we applied this rubric. That you know you you can't write about what does not belong to you. Uh, a series like The Wire would never be made by a a white scriptwriter. Uh, or a, a book like Quackers. I mean, it's a great book. Uh, I love that series. But we would we would decide, oh no, that's no no. You can't write about black people. They don't belong to you. And I I just I find the whole idea unworkable and obnoxious. And illiberal. Now, the Guardian reviewer of your latest book, Rachel Cook, uh, she lamented. Quote, whatever the reading public may feel, and clearly your books are very popular, the organisers of these writers' festivals, they just don't like you anymore, whether they uh, care to admit it or not. Following on from that, I mean, have you been invited to any writers' festivals in Australia since 2016? Well, I have to say I was uh, a participant in the Canberra uh, Festival this last summer, remotely. It was a Remote. Much, yeah. much shorter trip <laughs> to my desk. <laughs> <laughs> so good, you know, good for them. So yeah. I can't yeah. say that I have been completely ignored. It's not as if I have a chip on my shoulder. Now, the Cato Institute, it's a Washington-based think tank. They published a poll. It was conducted by Emily Eakins. Um, she headed the polling program at Cato, and she's been a past guest on this program, uh, certainly when this poll was published. And the poll found that more than half of Americans have become afraid to voice their opinions freely for fear of retaliation or severe criticism, you're clearly not one of them. But that's a striking poll figure. More than half of Americans have become afraid to speak their mind. Lionel. Yes, and, and I think that we have to take some responsibility for this. That is, the only way you fight back against a, a climate like that is to speak your mind anyway. And because we're all participants in that climate and all these people keeping their mouths shut and not saying what they really think are, are contributing to the environment in which you can't say what you really think. It's, it's kind of a feedback loop. And I, I try to interfere with that loop. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm just naturally foolhardy, uh, but I won't keep my mouth shut. You know, that's not my job. In fact, it's in defiance of my job to self-censor all the time. You know, writers are supposedly creative and experimental, and they're, 
They should be trying on ideas for size, even if they later, later for, reject them. You're trying to make an impact. The more people there are in the world, the harder it is to stand out. And that means you, you, have, to, you have to be brave. And I would say maybe that extends to ordinary people, you know, if there's such a thing. You have warned that left liberals in America should watch what they say because it riles Trumpists tired of, quote, being told what they can and cannot say. I think I would clarify that it's not so much that they need to watch what they say. I want them to say whatever they want. But uh, their authoritarian impulses and their excesses of ideological fervor are fuel for the other side. And there's no question of that. When they go off the deep end about all these different expressions that 10 minutes ago were just fine and suddenly you can't say well it creates resentment and it's not just just a matter of you know feeding the far right the the battle in the united states right now is 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 for the middle the people who determine elections in the united states especially national elections are the independent voters and they're mostly centrists they're not extremists when you are extreme, you're going to alienate the people who are going to make the decisions. So I'm I'm just saying, you know, when you make yourself ridiculous, then clearly you you are giving fodder to the enemy. Your critics, such as the Washington Post reviewer of your book, they say, well, he said, rest assured, Lionel, the Trumpists are already rolled up and saying what they want anyhow. So why go to those links to warn liberals that they should be careful because it might just roll up the Trumpists of being told what they can and cannot say? I have no problem with the left expressing what they think. In fact, sometimes <laughs> that does a favor for everyone because you find out how crackers they are. They'll hang themselves. So that's one of the good things about people saying their mind. In fact, you can say that about anybody. I want everyone to be able to express themselves. That doesn't mean that they're going to be persuasive or not expose aspects of their thinking, which is ugly or silly. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the more speech, the better. Okay. Now, you've been a critic of cancel culture. Your critics, just keeping with them for a moment, they'd say that the existence of your new book abominations, which is available in all good bookstores across Australia, they'd say that um, the fact that it's being published, reviewed widely and sold, that's proof that cancel culture does not really exist. How would you respond to those critics, Lionel? Well, I have for some time now made it clear that the only reason I'm still standing is not because of my own personal persistence and, and, and some kind of special bravery or armor or formula. Cancel culture's out there. There are plenty of people who don't like what I say or oppose my positions and would love me to go away. The only reason I'm still on the scene is that the people who publish me have stood behind me. That includes my publisher, HarperCollins, and especially uh, the magazine I have a column in, the British Spectator. 
Fraser Nelson, the spectator editor whom you just referred to, and you actually dedicate your book to Fraser and his fellow editors who never delete your jokes. (laughs) Yes, I can't tell you how grateful I am for that. The truth is that if if people in positions of authority uh, would act as if they are in authority and use the power they have to be loyal to the writers and artists and journalists that that they publish, uh, we wouldn't have cancel culture. Cancel culture is ultimately a failure of people at the top. It is cowardice, rampant cowardice by people who should know better and are, are in a position to weather Twitter storms easily. You just ignore it and wait for it to go away. But instead, you know, you've got CEOs and publishers uh, just saying, oh, oh, this is this makes us look bad, you know, fire her ass. And I, I just that's where the problem lies, yeah. not so much in social media. It's the people who are paying attention to social media yes. that are the problem. Yes, I think a strong argument can be made that social media, particularly the Twitter sphere, has just debased public discourse. And you avoid social media, especially Twitter, don't you? All of it. Yeah, I just don't do it. There are not enough hours yeah. in the day. Yeah. And I, I, I know myself well enough that I would be vulnerable <laughs> to, you know, reading this, that, and the other thing and ending up walking down the street. You know, when he said, you know, well, well. <laughs> I just, I, I don't want that life. I don't want to be contaminated in that way. That was novelist and columnist Lionel Shriver speaking with me back in October at the time of the publication of her first non-fiction book. It's titled Abominations, Selected Essays from a Career of Courting Self-Destruction. And that's it for the first of our summer series. More best of Between the Lines in our next episode. I'm Tom Switzer. Till then, bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.